It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. I'm Mark Feinsand, executive reporter for MLB.com. Welcome to the Executive Access Podcast. John Ricco started his career in baseball as a media relations intern for the Yankees before moving to the American League office and ultimately the commissioner's office. He remained there for several years before joining the Mets in 2004 as assistant general manager, a role he served under three different GMs. Following last week's announcement that Sandy Alderson would take a leave of absence to undergo cancer treatment, Rico, currently the team's senior VP of baseball operations in addition to assistant GM, is now charged with helping turn around the Mets with fellow front office members J.P. Ricciardi and Omar Minaya. Back in March, I sat down with Rico in his office at the Mets Spring Training Complex for a wide-ranging discussion about his career and the state of the game in general. Welcome to the Executive Access Podcast. I'm Mark Feinsand of MLB.com at First Data Field in Port St. Lucie, Florida, sitting here with Mets Senior Vice President and Assistant General Manager John Rico. John, thanks for taking the time. No problem. Glad, glad to have you here. So, John, you grew up in New Jersey as a Yankees fan. Uh, what would 14-year-old John Rico have thought about you having a lengthy stint working in the Mets front office? I think uh, the 14-year-old John Rico would be shocked that I got uh, this kind of job at all. So forget about what team. But, yeah, I was a child of the uh, Yankees of the late 70s. So Thurman Munson and Reggie Jackson. Um, and uh, that carried into the 80s. Um, I kind of started to switch allegiances at the commissioner's office once you go there. And we'll get into this. But, you know, you start to look at the game a little bit differently. And uh, the Yankees quickly switched from a team I like to a little bit of the big bad, you know. And we're dealing with them on a daily basis. And, you know, uh, so it just became more of a career at some point. But, yeah, I, I grew up uh, a Yankee fan in the 70s. Was baseball always your, your favorite sport? I, you know, I just loved all sports, uh, even all through college. Um, I was just one of those guys. Every season it was just all in, uh, but I loved baseball. Did you, as a child, have a, a thought about a career in baseball? Was that, or, or was it the same as all of us who said, I want to be a baseball player? No, you know, in terms of baseball, I, even when I graduated college, it still wasn't clear to me that that was going to be the route. I was really open to any sport in any way. Um, I was a uh, sports writer all through high school and college and liked all of sports. I went to Villanova, so a lot of college hoops. I really just wanted to work in sports. I knew that was my passion. And whichever door opened, um, I was going to pursue. So at Villanova, you mentioned you wrote for the student newspaper. You got a communications degree there the sports editor of the paper. Uh, did you ever consider sports writing as a, as a career? It's a really glamorous one. <laughs> yeah, no, I definitely did. And that, the 14-year-old me, would have not been surprised if I had gone that route because I like to write. It's hard, and, and that's where I probably started. At some point, um, I watched guys who were really good at it, and they were able to churn out articles, quality articles, very quickly. For me, it was always a labor. I, I, I had to sit there and, and really work at it. And I started to say, you know what, it doesn't come that easy. I may have to look in a different direction. And uh, so I still, you know, I worked in PR for a while um, and enjoyed it, um, but was given an opportunity at one point to move over to the uh, 
to the baseball operations side and took it. But so the writing just wasn't a natural. I'm, I'm decent at it if I have time to sit down and do it. But to be a daily beat writer, you gotta you gotta really be uh, quick. By the end of the game, you gotta have your story written. I could never do that. I, I've heard of that. I've heard that's the case. Um, so after you graduate, you spent 1991 as an intern in the Yankees media relations department. What was it like going to work for at the time your your favorite team? Yeah, that was that was an unbelievable experience. I mean, I, I got to work for Jeff Idelson, who's now president of the Hall of Fame, and you talk about you know an entry point. I was so lucky. Uh, this is back in a time when internships were still not what they are now. You know, the Yankees like would, paid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was one part. But we only had three interns, I think, in the whole company, and uh, so we just did a lot of everything. It was a really um, important entry point for me because I learned stadium operations. I worked in tickets, worked in the press box, worked for a lot of good people on a bad team. Um, but uh, it was an unbelievable experience. I mean, you look back at the even the beat writers that covered that team, they've all gone on to, to do great things. Tom Verducci was, was there, Heyman, uh, Michael Kay, Joel Sherman. Um, it was really, a, I was very fortunate as a kid just out of college to be in that environment. Again, working for Jeff Idelson, who ended up you know, doing great things as well. After your stint with the Yankees, you interned in the American League Office of Media Relations also. This is back when the American National League had their own offices and it wasn't just the, the Unified Commissioner's Office. Yeah. Uh, you eventually took a full-time position there as a system public relations director. What did you envision your career at that point? Did you know you, you did not want to stay in public relations full-time or was that, was that something you maybe considered? I think I was, from very, very early on, I, was, I had a viewpoint of just learn everything you can. Like I, I really didn't think in terms of a career path I was just fortunate to be, I said, listen, you're in a great spot, just soak it up, and whatever they throw at you, try to, try to take on. So I did the PR for a year, worked with Phyllis Marriage, who was another unbelievable mentor for me. And a year in, Dr. Bobby Brown, who was the league president, uh, there was an opening um, in the waivers position. Tim McCleary, who had the job, ended up getting promoted to be the assistant GM of the Yankees with, uh, with Bob Watson. So they asked me to move over and learn the waiver rules. And I, again, just looking to learn everything I could, I said yes in two seconds. And that was really the start to this career because at 23 years old, I'm now working on a day-to-day -day basis with every American League GM and assistant GM, not only discussing the rules, but really advising them on the rules. And it put me in a position where they looked at me as a resource and they looked at me, even if it was only in this small window, as someone who had a certain talent and skill set. And I started to build relationships at a really young age with all the, you know, the top baseball people in the game. One of them, my boss now, Sandy Alderson, who I got to meet, you know, back then in that position. Uh, and that, that really set me on this career path. You ended up at the commissioner's office once the leagues merged and going through your resume at the commissioner's office, you did a lot of different things. Yeah. Um, from the administration of the CBA between the teams and the union, managing contracts and salary arbitration, uh, managing non-legal functions of the labor relations department, working with GMs, assistant GMs. Is there a better sort of baseball graduate school than working in the commissioner's office? No, it's. I recommend it to all the guys who come through if they have a chance, and it's not easy, but if you can get in there, it, it certainly is a, a training ground. You know, my career, after I did the waiver records job for a few years, uh, again, looking to just learn more, I was offered a position over in labor relations, which... Is it sounds as boring as it is, it's labor relations. It wasn't exactly what I was thinking as a next step, but 
I knew that learning the collective bargaining agreement and getting some uh, education in terms of dealing with agents and contract negotiations was going to be a plus. Uh, and that's what was attractive to me in that position. And honestly, you know, I did that for a few years. Uh, uh, Rob Manford came on board a few years into that, and he had that mindset. He said, I want to turn the commissioner's office into a training ground for executives. And if you look around the game now, there's, there's tons of them. I was only one of many who ended up starting there and going out and either uh, – becoming an assistant GM, GM, club council, that kind of thing. It's really uh, taken off. It's amazing, you know, talking to executives around the game and, and going over their careers with them. The number of people who, you know, you say, oh, well, when I started here, I was working, you know, in a low-level position, and these are the three guys I was working with, and now they're all GMs, or they're all, you know, president of baseball operations for a team. The, 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 the training ground of the commissioner's office uh, has produced, I don't think people realize how many yeah. executives in the game right now well, and, and it's, it's no coincidence. What, what's happening there, whatever job you have, you're learning. When I was doing my job, I'm learning at, one, at 30 times the speed of an assistant GM because I'm encountering all of the problems that all the clubs, because they call the commissioner's office when they have issues. And so you're there putting out all these fires. So on a certain level, you're learning at much uh, greater speed than a guy who's sitting at a club and only dealing with something every five years. Well, there you're dealing with it, you know, six times a year. Right. So. Uh, there's a natural, you know, uh, you know, it, it's the the learning process is definitely sped up there. Now that said, as a sports fan, and I assume you played sports as a kid, yep. you probably have a competitive side as well. Yeah, is that you don't have that competition when you're working for the league office? The game wins, not a team. Yeah. Uh, is that something that? you know, drove you to maybe move to the club side at some point? Yeah, that's certainly a big part of it. You need a certain mindset. When you're working at the commissioner's office, you're in midtown Manhattan in an office building. You do, you are working in baseball, and you can go to games, but you're not on the front lines part of a competitive environment. Uh, that's not for everybody. I know Kim Ang, who's a good friend, you know, has worked for clubs and central offices, and it was a tough adjustment for her. She started with a club and then went there and was like, there's not the energy. I started, you know, I had the internship with the Yankees, but I started really my career at the commissioner's office, and that's kind of what I knew. So um, I was kind of okay with it. And actually, looking back, you know, I, I really enjoyed a lot of aspects of the, the job. It's more about helping people than actually competing against people. You're facilitating, not competing. But once you get here, yeah, it is a different animal, and you're, you are energized by the, the, uh, the com competition and being part of a team and trying to build something to ultimately win a World Series. According to reports, in 1998, Brian Cashman tried to hire you as his assistant GM with the Yankees when he had taken over for Bob Watson. Omar Minaya tried to do the same with the Expos in 2002. Both times you opted to stay at the commissioner's office. Did you believe at that time that your future, long-term, might be with the commissioner's office? No, you know, I always thought I'd end up with a club, but I wasn't ready in my eyes to do this job, the assistant GM job, to the level I, I expected. So when Brian called, I knew I could do a part of the job, but I wasn't nearly ready at that time to do what, you know, the job to the level I thought. So one thing I've always had pretty much, I've, I've had some confidence that things are going to work out, just keep, you know, uh, working hard. And I always looked in the mirror and said, okay, what's best for me at this point? Because I know better than they knew who I am and how, you know, how I can be a uh, contributing member to a department. So in both of those cases, the timing wasn't right for me. Uh, but I... I did have an eye on working for a team. I interviewed with a number of different teams, just looking for the right right fit. Uh, when Brian asked me, I was very young. I was in law school at the time, and 
it just wasn't the right time. Uh, Omar was a little tougher decision, but uh, ultimately it's fine. Funny, you know, it worked out. He came back here and we worked together anyway. Right. So, in 2004, you do join the Mets. You finally make the, the jump to the club side. What changed in your mind? What What made you think that now I'm ready? Yeah. So some of it is just time. You know, I had I had pretty much at that point felt like I did everything I could at the commissioner's office, and it was my learning curve had really diminished. I had tried to be creative over the last couple of years. Um, to keep learning and developing, but I had reached a point where I was like, okay, now I'm ready. I'm, I'm feeling a little bit stifled. I'm ready to make the jump. And, you know, I had known Jim Duquette for a while, had a good relationship with him. It's a team in my hometown, team I knew very well. Uh, you know, I had always, you know, sat at the commissioner's office looking at the 30 clubs, and you keep lists of place, places that are, you know, you'd love to go. And, you know, the Mets were definitely one of them. So uh, when that opportunity presented itself, I was, I was really interested. What was the biggest adjustment to the, moving to the club side? Uh, it's just more of a 24-7, uh, 365 job. You know, the commissioner's office is, is, you know, it's not quite 9 to 5, but it's more normal, you know, hours. You can take vacation in the summer. You can, you know, there's a lot of things you can do and have a normal life. I think uh, the young guys I talk to are coming into the game. I always caution them that you better have passion, you better love it, because it is an all-in type of situation uh, if you're going to be good at it. You really need to have that passion and love it and wake up every morning, can't wait to get to the park because the hours are long, and you know that better than anybody. The travel is not easy. Uh, it's difficult to live a quote-unquote normal life, have a family, have you know kids. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's probably the biggest adjustment that you have to make when you come to a job like this. You clearly had vast experience with administrative matters, contracts, rules, CBA, etc. How did you go about learning the on-field, the scouting and player development side of the game, because obviously at the commissioner's office, that's not a focus in the jobs that you had. Yeah, and that's one thing where Omar was really uh, probably the most influential person for me. He forced me out from behind my computer and out, you know, into the car with him to watch games, out onto the backfields to watch games, to converse with the scouts, to talk with the coaches, uh, because, you know, my go-to school skill was always going to be you know, now contract negotiations, the rules, organization, that type of thing. But, uh, you know, if you're going to be a well-rounded executive and certainly if you're going to move up the chain in terms of assistant GM, GM, you know, you have to have the ability to evaluate. And if not, to at least can, to understand who are the better evaluators and how, you know, uh, how to evaluate them so that you get the best information to make the best decisions. So Omar was really the guy who every day, starting in spring training all season was constantly pushing me to make sure I wasn't kind of running back behind my computer screen and to a comfort zone, but kind of pushing me out into where I was a little bit more, you know, uncomfortable and forcing me to learn, you know, a whole different part of the game. What was the highest level you ever played baseball? I only played in high school. I only played uh, sophomore year of high school. So I was, I was real small. I didn't grow until later. I was a left-handed pitcher and, uh, you know, I could control the ball. I just didn't have much velocity and just was too small to kind of compete. And uh, so I just found other ways to, you know, try to, because I loved it, to be involved and ultimately it led to this. So was the was learning the scouting side of it and the, the uh, evaluation side of it more difficult because you didn't have sort of a, a firsthand background in the game? Uh, I don't think so. I think, you know, you spend enough time uh, with people and, and – you know, it just takes time. It, it doesn't, you know, some people are born with that ability to just step out and, and maybe do that naturally. Um, or like a J.P. Ricciardi or Omar have that. 
Um, I think it's just taken me time. I've, I've, I've you know, taken my lead and I've had a lot of conversations with successful executives who had similar backgrounds, who weren't necessarily great players, but were able to become, you know, Hall of Fame type, type executives. And, you know, Sandy's one, for instance, you know, he was, his strength is more, you know, he was a general counsel and more of a organizational type guy. Um, so, uh, you know, I've always kind of used those people as, as not only mentors, but um, people who I kind of harken back to say, you can do this. You know, it's been done at the highest level by, you know, uh, very successful people. So don't limit yourself because you don't have this part of the job. Well, and I think now more than ever, the, the, being a former player is not an advantage necessarily when you're looking to get into these these jobs. There's only one former player in a GM chair right now, Jerry Depoto. Yeah. And beyond that, it's a lot of guys who are finance and business majors and Ivy Leaguers and uh, so it seems like, you know, it's funny you said Omar forced you out from behind your computer. Now it seems like executives are forcing themselves back behind the computer. Yeah. Uh, I mean, how, how have analytics changed the nature of the job over the years you've been in? Right. Yeah. So when I started again back in 91, 92, you know, that wasn't necessarily the case. There were some, you know, executives that way. It has, it has the, uh, the balance has shifted. I think part of it is just there's so much more data um, available to us that you need to manage that data and, and the data has replaced the the objective has replaced the subjective in a lot of areas, and so it does now come down to a lot more of how do we read that data and make decisions based on it, as opposed to you know the the going out and watching a guy for an hour or even less and making a decision based on that. We're, we're doing it more on you know uh, on the data we're getting, and so the skill set you need to be a GM I think has shifted um, considerably, and it's continuing to shift more rapidly over the recent years. Now, whether we hit a, a certain point where it kind of balances out, you know, I'm not sure. But, uh, yeah, it has, it has changed considerably since I got in the game. You served in your position under three different GMs of the Mets, Jim Duquette, Omar Minaya, now Sandy Alderson. How rare is it for somebody to remain in that position through three different administrations? Uh, you know, I, I haven't really stepped back and looked at how many times it's happened. But if you have, if you're good at what you do and you have a certain skill set, and mine was one, that is fairly unique. You know, when I first started out, Bill Murray, who was a longtime executive at the commissioner's office, when he was teaching me, him and Timmy McCleary were teaching me the waiver rules. Um, both of them said, listen, this is job security. Like, learn these, learn them well. Every team needs somebody who can navigate through the complex, you know, 120-year-old, you know, rules that, are, that we've layered with all different types. So, uh, I took that to heart, and that has helped me really because I, I'm kind of I have the job in a lot of ways that nobody really wants to do. It's it's not unless you really embrace it. It's and Bob Miller, who you said you spoke to, is similar. You know, he's got he's got that go-to skill. So when a new GM comes in, unless he has somebody who he really has those skills and he you know is tied to, he's probably not going to look to make the change immediately with you. So that was a, an advantage I had uh, in each of these changes. And as I've you know, expand in my role, you know, and taking on more value. Each time there's a change, it's a different situation. When Sandy came on, for instance, well, let's go back. When Jim left and Omar came on, Omar had already tried to hire me. So that was right. like, okay, that was kind of a natural. Well, fast forward, you know, they make the change with Omar and Sandy's one of the candidates and, you know, I'd known him for forever. Um, and he didn't have a, a guy. And, the, you know, the other thing that I... I represented for him, and this position can represent 
is someone who knows where all the bodies are buried, for lack of a better term. I, mean, <laughs> I was that for Sandy and JP and Paul DePodesta. You know, we had that inner circle, but I was the one who kind of knew I had history here. I knew what had come before, so they weren't starting from, from zero. And that's not going to last you forever. I had to prove myself again to him. But at the outset, it helped me get through the transition and at least get my ch a chance to show him what I could do. Institutional knowledge is a very valuable thing. It is. When Omar was let go in, in October of 2010, you were named interim GM, but you weren't promoted to the job on the full-time basis. Was that disappointing? No. You know, you work in sports, you know how this goes. You know, the team's successful, you know, fans, you know, you can, you know, you can justify continuity or you can want continuity. Uh, when you're not, it's really hard to say we're going to take the guy who was the number two when we didn't do well, we're getting rid of the GM and we're going to promote him. I got, I got that and understood that. And um, as I talked about earlier, I've never really had this drive to, you know, I got to be the, you know, the youngest GM or the, you know, so for me, I was comfortable. I knew what I was doing. I enjoyed my job. I thought I was good at it. And I was, I was fine with, you know, continuing that role. And I looked at it, they, uh, the ownership, Jeff, Wilpon, Fred Wilpon asked me to be part of the transition and help them find the next GM. And, uh, you know, I was really honored that they would think of me in that way. And so, you know, that's what I did. I helped Jeff uh, with the interview process and we went out and found Sandy. It was a little bit odd interviewing for my boss, right? but it made it easier. Again, it's such a small business. Everybody we interviewed, I'd been friends with and known for years. And I think I helped, you know, obviously it was a pretty easy choice when you get a Sandy Alderson to, you know, who wants the job, so I thought we ended up with a good choice. You noted your affinity for the rules and, and your knowledge of them. As the game continues to evolve on and off the field, how challenging is it to keep up and make sure that you're well-versed with every new CBA? You know, I've, I've, even though I worked at the commissioner's office and I used to be the guy you call, anytime we make a move, I still make those calls. I call Jeff Pfeiffer at the commissioner's office. I'll call the guys at the LRD, Morgan Sword. I don't, I, my, my approach to this, this game and my role is to never take anything for granted. So as much of knowledge as I have, I'm constantly on the phone with those guys because they are on the front lines of as things change. And if you keep that communication, that line of dialogue open, um, it's you know it's nice. It's a nice safety net, and you learn because um, you know we'll get memos that tell us the rules changing this way, the rules changing that way in black and white. But it's the interpretation of those rules a lot of times that can happen without you really knowing it. And so unless you're, you're conversing with the guys who are in the middle of it, the commissioner's office guys, uh, you're not going to have a feel for kind of the nuance of the rules. And there are some nuance. It's not just, you know, go online. People always say, can I learn the rules? Yeah, you can. You can go on and read them. But unless you're living them, it's very hard to uh, understand them and kind of, you know, navigate them. So, Figuring out how they relate yeah. to certain situations with your team, et cetera. Exactly. So uh, I guess my answer is it's a continuing education. And... New rule comes out, I read it, I try to try to process it, then I have a conversation with the guys who are actually helping teams. And then I said before, I may not deal with that new rule change for four years, but they're dealing with it tomorrow. So, uh, you know, I see something, what happened there, how did that work? I just put it in the back of my mind for when, if and when that situation comes up with the Mets. You've emerged as one of the primary faces in the media for the Mets for a number of years now, uh, especially when Sandy was dealing with his health situation. Did it take time to get comfortable with being a spokesperson for the team at times? You know, what made it a lot easier was the fact that I started, I really do think, because I started in PR and as a writer, I've had a good relationship with all of our, the guys who covered the team. Um, so the first few times I'm put out there and they're all kind of there looking for me for answers, 
I'm not looking at this foreign group of people who are just, you know, it's, it's all guys I kind of know. And, you know, although you do have a job to do and I have to, you know, you know, say the company line and all that, when you're familiar, friendly faces that you've had tons of conversations with, it does make you a little bit more at ease. So I think that's helped me. Um, and then it's a matter of, you know, preparation before you go out there trying to, you know, have an idea uh, of what you're going to say. Again, my training as a writer, even though I didn't get that far, you know, I always like to sit back and say, okay, what would I be asking? And prep myself for what's going to be the tough question, how are you going to answer it, that kind of thing, so that when I do get that question, I've at least thought about it. It's amazing that you think about people say, well, you don't really use a lot of what you learn in college. What you learned as a student sports writer actually does come into play in your job now. There's no doubt about it. That's, that's interesting. Uh, there's a perception that New York can be a very tough market to handle um, from a playing standpoint, from an executive standpoint. From a playing standpoint, how much does that factor in when you're considering the acquisition of a player, how they're going to handle everything that comes with New York? Yeah, for me, a lot. Uh, for Sandy, I, it took me some time to convince him how, you know, how impactful that can be. I think he had been on some other markets, and you know, even JP comes from Toronto. They all come in and say. Yeah, I know, but it's, you know, I've done this. And then six months in, they're like, man, this is a different animal. <laughs> and it really is. So, uh, um, I, you know, I, I grew up in the area. I kind of know this, the city. I, I keep an eye out for guys and signs. We've made a few mistakes over the years and uh, didn't read the, the signs of a guy who just wasn't going to fit. And uh, so I try to keep an eye on that because I'm not saying it's, you know, uh, it's, you know, 80% of the guys can't do it, and there's just only select few. But there are some, maybe some guys who definitely can handle it. <coughs> Everybody thinks back to Ed Whitson, right. you know, and he's the poster child for it. And so there are cases like that. And, you know, you have to keep your eyes out for it because you don't want to, for, for the organization or for them, bring a guy in who just is not going to work here. And uh, you can, in conversations with the player, and if you ask around, you know, guys who are scared of, Kind of the big city, bright lights. You know, you can you can get a feel for it, and usually we'll we'll kind of head in a different direction. Sandy recently said he thinks you're going to be a good GM at some point. How important is it to you, if it is at all, to take that next step? You know, it really isn't. I, you know, there's only 30 of those jobs in baseball, so I've never made it a career goal. I, I never thought to myself, if I look back on my career and I was never a GM, it'll be a failure. Because one, again, there's only 30 jobs. It's a lot of circumstantial you know, uh, circumstances that, that lead to that position. Um, so I've operated on if it's the right time and the right place, and it happens. It was the same way I looked at the assistant jam job. It was like, I'm not in a rush to just take the job to have the job. <clears throat> right now in this position, I have more, than, more responsibility than I could ever, you know, handle. The challenge is great. Uh, the, you know, I'm doing exactly what I like to do. I'm in these meetings, I'm, in, I'm impacting the team, I'm getting to work with the manager. Uh, you know, ego-wise is, is one thing that, you know, whenever I catch myself thinking I want to be a GM and I look back, why? You know, if I just don't have an ego that says I got to be that, you know, to, to feel fulfilled. So um, I've always looked at my career as I'd love to just, if I could draw it up, have a steady climb and become a GM when I'm most ready for it later in my career, and then head off into the sunset. You know, you're hired to be fired, so it's not like you can do it forever. <laughs> Although Brian has certainly shown he may right. do it forever, uh, Cashman. But uh, uh, that's the way I've always looked at it. And, I, you know, um, I, there's a part of me that thinks I'll be a lot more ready 
you know, later, you know, you build relationships, you have a lot more people, you want to surround yourself with good people. Well, it's hard to do that when you're young and don't really know good people. Only your people are telling you this guy's a good guy. Well, you work long enough, you start to work with different people day to day. You, you know, I think you can make better decisions in terms of who you surround yourself with. Um, so I'm on that track and, you know, we'll see where it takes me. You mentioned Brian. How remarkable is it for somebody to stay in the general manager chair at the Yankees for he's going into his 21st season right now? Yeah, it's unbelievable. And especially from my chair, I've seen him since he was, you know, baseball ops assistant when I was an intern. And to see his growth, I think he just has a great temperament. First off, he's very smart, but he has the perfect temperament and he's been able to kind of navigate uh, through all of the challenges that you know, a new, being a New York Yankees GM present. Um, he just has a, a real good way about him on top of being, you know, very smart. And, you know, he's, uh, I think the other thing he's done is he knows who they are. I think he, you know, a big part of being a successful executive is taking what you have and what your organization's strengths are and playing to those strengths. And I think Brian has done that really well um, over the years. You've been with the Mets for 14 years. There are a lot of highs and a lot of lows. What's your favorite moment on the field and your least favorite moment on the field? Uh, you know, my favorite moment was certainly getting to the World Series a couple of years ago. And, you know, we had a great run in 06. But the difference when we got there in 15 was that I looked out at that field and I knew I was a part of every single player, coach, the GM. I could tell you when and why and how we got that person and brought him on board and to see it kind of culminate in getting to the World Series. Now, we didn't win, but it was a pretty cool thing to sit back and say, you know, whether it was drafting, promoting, developing, you know, trading for, signing, you know, uh, to know you had a, a hand in from the very beginning and then seeing them all come together and, and take those steps was, was pretty neat. So, you know, I'd love to see that happen at the next level and, and at a World Series, but you know, uh, 2015 was pretty good. Um, the lowlights, uh, you know, it was tough the, the last days of Omar's regime because he's such a, a good guy and a lot of things happen outside your control and watching kind of that end. You know, here you have a, a, a local, you know, one of the best stories in New York sports. You have a local kid who grew up in Queens, you know, you know, didn't, you know, was not coming from a wealthy family or anything like that and worked his way all the way up to be GM and had some success. And <coughs> I look back, at our 2009 team, where we had just made the trade for J.J. Putz and put him in front of K-Rod, and we had, you know, Beltron and Reyes and Wright and Delgado all basically in their prime. That team was, was as good a team as I've seen us put together, and they just had injuries right from the beginning, and it kind of fell apart, and that kind of led to, to the end. That was, that was difficult to watch, but, you know, you learn. You have lessons you learn. And uh, Roland Heeman, the longtime executive, when I was young, we had a long conversation. One of the things he said, and it stuck out, is, you know, this game, you're going to remember the, the good times way more than the bad times. Even though it's a game that's based on failure, you know, everybody says, you, you know, uh, you do remember. And when we sit around down here and we're watching games, we're talking, you're always talking about the, the high, high points. Uh, they just stick out and you take them with you. The 86 Mets, you know, it's, it, those are the things that linger. And it's really true. Um, you really do remember Somehow, our, the way our brains work, you have selective memory, and you do remember the, the good times better than more more often than the, than the bad. You touched on this a little bit before. Uh, you once called the demands of this job relentless. What's the toughest part of this job? 
Yeah, I think I think it is it is relentless. You know the, you know you have to be on all the time. And one of the things I love about doing this job in New York is that relentlessness. But the fact that you're being scrutinized by a million fans. I mean, it feels like sometimes, and it just makes you raise your game. You gotta be you gotta be on. You know, there's no room for you know you're not gonna you know make a mistake and nobody's gonna notice. Like everything you do is kind of in the spotlight and. But that's that's a challenge to be up and on all the time, um, and you know I have a family, I have three kids, and I'm you know you're trying to do the best you can, but this job really makes you you got to focus almost all the time uh, to make sure you're not you know not slipping up and you know you're giving this team every chance. In my position, I'm just trying to give our team every chance to win, and you don't want to be you know uh, it's not that someone you know it's just. I look in the mirror and I want to make sure every day that I'm, I'm doing everything I can to help this team win. What's your favorite part of the job? Uh, I think the favorite part is the fact that I still get up every morning and I get in the shower and my mind immediately is like, I can't wait to solve today's problems. It's like, how do we, maybe we, you know, in some days it's a trade I'm thinking of or a signing or some, or it's, it could be just how to fix, you know, our nutrition program or our minor league, you know, work with our minor league guys to do something better in the minor leagues. There's always a new challenge, and I'm still energized by that. And uh, you know, I, that's that's my favorite part. Is in any job, whatever it is, if you could have that attitude on a daily basis that you're really, you know, energized by getting to work, you know, you got to feel blessed. And that's the position I'm in. You also oversee the organization's budget, not only for player payroll but non-player personnel as well. As a communications major who's been in PR and has a law degree, have you always been good with finances? Well, I was a business minor, so I had that. My father was an accountant, and I have, I am definitely, I like spreadsheets, and I love spending time. That's another part of this job that a lot of people don't want to do, but I'm a guy who, when, every, when all the numbers add up, there's, it's a great feeling. Uh, that's my father and me, and uh, so I'm kind of right for that part of it, too, that, you know, I, I don't run away from that. I don't run away to run out and, and watch a game. Like, if it's budget time, I'm okay sitting there and, and cranking it out with the CFO and our uh, accountants to make sure we're, you know, meeting the numbers the way we need to. So it sounds like your advice to young people trying to get in the game would be get good at the things nobody else wants to do. <laughs> you know what? It's, it's not a bad thought. It, it really is, for me, I, I say you got to have a go-to skill. So find out, you know, figure out what you like. You can't just pick a go-to skill and say, I'm going to do that. Right. But if there's something that you really like um, – Pursue it and get good at it, and then you can build around that. But if you have that go-to skill, especially if it's something that you know not a lot of people want to do, you know you end up like me. That's that's part of what my story is. For many years, certain teams were big believers in analytics; others weren't. Now all thirty teams have analytics departments to some varying degree. What do you think is going to be the next thing that teams try to do to separate themselves from the pack to get another competitive advantage? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Without revealing uh, your state secrets, yeah. of course. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, we talk a lot about um, not worrying about necessarily what that's going to be, but do it better than anybody else. Sandy is constantly talking about, it. you know, the, the new idea is a new idea for like a second, and then everybody is on it and they're doing it. So rather than wasting our time worrying about trying to figure out that, we're kind of in touch with all these teams, but how do you actually take the concept and get it out onto the field and that's that's really difficult and that takes an organization and that takes a lot of time and effort um and that's quite frankly what we spend most of our day doing is sandy and i sit there and try to 
look over the organization and figure out where are the inefficiencies and how are we uh, going to be able to do things better. So when it comes to analytics, it's great. You got a team full of guys up in an office somewhere looking at all these numbers, but how do you get it to Jose Reyes or get it to you know your starting pitchers in a usable form to where they can actually help them win games? And the from there to there, from the analytics office to the pitching mound is light years. There's a ton of people in between and processes that have to happen on a daily basis. So, you know, I don't know what the next great thing will be, but I know we're going to be positioned and trying to do it better than anybody else. I must say you and Sandy are very much on the same page because when I asked him that exact question last year, I believe he gave me almost word for word the same answer. <laughs> so that's uh, that's a good sign. Yeah. When... Uh, when you start trying to bring analytics to players and you start trying to bring different ideas to players, how important is it that they're receptive to it? I mean, players are creatures of habit, right? They've been doing the same thing since they were playing in Little League or high school. How important is it for them to buy into it and not just say, yeah, yeah, okay, and then give a little glance and move on? Yeah, so you know, the challenge we set forth for the analytics guys and for the coaches is that you have to, you know, you're dealing with all different types of personalities and people. You have to be creative and find a way to get to them. You know, if we really believe that they should be doing this, we have to find a way to convince them that's the right way. Now, you will run into, and it's very rare, the player who just, you know, turns you off. You know, you're not going to have a team full of those, and you're not going to keep a guy like that around for too long because if he's not open-minded enough to listen, you know, that's probably not a guy we want. Right. But we are, our first thought is not to blame the player. That's too easy. It, there's, there's a way to get to any one of these guys, and you've got to be creative, and you've got to be relentless, and you've got to be... Um, uh, you know, continuing to work at it as a group. You know, Mickey, it's one of the strengths we saw right away. You know, he has that, you know, uh, from what we've seen so far, ability to look at each player as an individual. You got to get to know them and then figure out, okay, if I need to get a message or I need to get something out of them. And that's what good managers do, you know, whether it's in the front office or on the field. You get to know your people and you're going to motivate them different ways. If someone's motivated by money, if someone's motivated by you know, uh, fame, if someone's motivated by, you know, whatever, you know, you find what makes them tick and then approach it to approach it that way to try to get them to do what you need them to do to, to help the team. The Mets have built a strong mental skill staff at every level throughout the organization. Why was that so important to you? Uh, you know, that was something that, um, that, that probably is one area, maybe going back to your earlier question, that I think is still somewhat untapped in baseball, team sports in general. The, the kind of the neck up, um, you know, we're all about, you know, the, I think uh, we're, we've got the conditioning covered, we've got the nutrition covered, but the, the mental part of the game is so huge, uh, especially in our sport where uh, it is a game of failure and you have to stay positive and um, that I think there, there are some strides there and that's an area we've identified to try to, to ramp it up in the last few years. It's a, it's a very difficult thing to do because um, you're talking about you got to get the players to trust. Um, it's a very kind of fuzzy thing. It's not something you can put your you know your your hand on that that you know um, uh, it, it's it's a difficult thing. So we've spent a lot of time um, looking at organizations that do it successfully, whether it's the military, whether it's some colleges that are that have done this for years, um, and uh, we're getting there. Um, our our approach has been kind of a ground up introduce it more heavily in the minor leagues so that when our guys get to the big leagues they've already it's, it's just normalized we're trying to make it the same way every team has a pitching coach or a, a hitting coach 
there's a mental skills coach when a player is dealing with, you know, some issues. And it's not, we're not talking about, you know, addiction issues or that. We're talking about just anxiety. You know, if a guy's not hitting with runners in scoring position, is there a mental, you know, block there? Is he getting too amped up? And how do we arm him with a skill, a skill set that allows him to perform better in certain situations? And, you know, as you know, as a, as a writer who travels, the game is relentless from a physical and mental standpoint. And so if we can have somebody uh, with each team who helps our players uh, on the mental side, I think we're going to be better for it. Mets Senior Vice President and Assistant General Manager John Ricco, thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Oh, it's been great. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Many thanks to John Ricco for taking the time to sit down for this week's episode of Executive Access. For our next episode, I'll sit down with Padres Senior Advisor and Director of Player Personnel, Logan White. We'll discuss his lengthy scouting career, which included a stint as the Dodgers Amateur Scouting Director, during which he drafted Clayton Kershaw, Matt Kemp, Russell Martin, and others. We'll also talk about domestic scouting versus international scouting, the importance of bloodlines in baseball, and much more. You can search for Executive Access on Apple Podcasts, Art19, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and enjoy these conversations all season long. If you like what you hear, leave us a review while you're at it. We always appreciate those. And be sure to spread the word and tell all the baseball fans in your life about Executive Access. Until next time, I'm Mark Feinstein. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.